everybody. Welcome to Utterly Astounded, where eschatology meets current events meets real life. At least my regular real life at home here in Southern California. Well, this episode, The Antichrist for My Friends and Family, is a strange title. I know, but it's dedicated to my friends and family who aren't Christians. And this is also for anyone who doesn't know much about the Bible in regard to prophecy Maybe you've heard things about the figure of an Antichrist and have heard about the evil with the number 666, which is the mark of the beast, but maybe you haven't spent much time thinking about those things or looking into what we call eschatology, the study of last things. So I want you to be aware, friends and family, and whoever else is listening, that there are some facts you need to know. I'm going to give you a little crash course on what the Bible says about the times we're in and the person of the Antichrist. So this is just if you're curious, maybe you want a little education on the subject, I encourage you to keep listening when you think about what's going on in our world and maybe that has prompted you to think about prophecy, think about what God has said about the end times because he has had much to say. So. Biblical truth, I would say, these days is in short supply, the basic biblical truth in our secular world. There used to be things that we were taught when we were growing up. You didn't need to be in church to hear about things like the golden rule, which one of our friends says, oh yeah, the golden rule, that's easy. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And that's true too, (laughs) to a large extent. But when Jesus was talking about the golden rule, meaning, of course, however you want to be treated, that's how you treat someone else. I mean, we learned that. We knew what the Garden of Eden was. We had heard Adam and Eve about the devil and tribulation, and we'd even heard the term, usually most people know or have heard the term Armageddon. But if you type in Armageddon into Google, the first thing that comes up is the 1998 movie with Bruce Willis. Now, I thought that was a very good film, but I assure you that shouldn't be the first thing you think of when you hear that term. So I have to be focused on this because there's so much information, but there's just some facts that you need to know to identify the Antichrist. That's where we're headed to this eventual rise of the Antichrist and the period of tribulation. So I'm just going to focus on some things about him, some things that you will need to know, uh, and possibly if he comes to power in your lifetime, my lifetime, but that would be a whole nother subject about when the church is going to be raptured. And I can't talk about all that at the moment. So let's just say in our lifetime, or you may see him. All right, so Antichrist means against, or it could mean in place of. So there are just some facts you need to know to identify the Antichrist, and that's really where where we're headed. Prophecy talks about that, the eventual rise of the Antichrist, and there is a lot to cover on the topic, the period of tribulation, etc., and there's so many things that go into it, but I can't go into all of that. I have to stay very focused on just who the Antichrist is and his traits and characteristics and things to look for. So I'm going to talk about that, and then I'm also going to talk about the temple in Israel and how that plays a part as well. 
So again, this is just very, very basic stuff. It's Antichrist 101. And so here we go. Traits and characteristics. Antichrist means against or in place of. And there are two different people in history that we can look at that we call precursors to the actual Antichrist spoken about in the book of Daniel, Matthew, 1 John, and Revelation, the ultimate man of lawlessness. So there's a couple of people in history that gave us a window into what the Antichrist is going to be like. The first one was Antiochus Epiphanes. And in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation. And he was referring to this in a, what we call a near fulfillment, or we can call it part A. Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of Syria in the second century BC, and he invaded Jerusalem and he made the altar in the temple into a shrine to Zeus and sacrificed pigs on it, which of course was the ultimate insult to the Jews. Then the later fulfillment, or what we would call part B of Jesus' prediction, looks to a future when the Antichrist uh, in the book of Revelation sets up an image in the temple and desecrates the temple. So hold on to that thought about the temple. That's going to be an important piece in all of this. There is a place in Jerusalem called the Temple Mount. You could easily pull it up on your computer. You'll get a... um, a picture of that, you'll see that really famous gold Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque that's there. But what you won't see on the Temple Mount is a Jewish temple. So, of course, keep that in mind. So Antiochus was, Antiochus Epiphanes was eccentric, of course, to say the least, but he was called like the mad one by his contemporaries. He was a persecutor and killer of the Jewish people. In the book of Maccabees, that's not an accepted book in the canon of scripture, but it's good for some Jewish history. And it talks about him saying that basically his insolence was impossible to be stopped. He was filled with arrogance. He was breathing fire in his rage against the Jews. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot and as it was rushing along and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. And it also says, again, with the arrogance, that it was superhuman and that he died actually as predicted in Daniel 8.25. It says, but he shall be broken without human means. And that is what happened to him. He went insane and he had some wretched disease of the bowels. Nice. So that is one guy that we would say is a foreshadowing, a precursor, a an anti-Christ uh, in place of Christ, but he's not the ultimate guy. He's one. And the second one we would point to that would have those traits would be Adolf Hitler, of course, who desired to rule the world in a global way and wanted to destroy the Jews. So that's what the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist wants to do, and the Antichrist wants to destroy the Jews in order to destroy the purposes of God through them. So that's what that's what he's after. It's always rebellion against God. So Adolf Hitler was not just a madman. Of course, we know that he was demon possessed, which is an example of the coming Antichrist who will be Satan filled. Now, my pastor talked about this book, and I got it, called The Morning of the Magicians, and it was published in 1969, and it is a bizarre read. (laughs) 
It is weird. It is hard to understand. It's um, just not even really philosophical, sort of philosophical, but mind-bending and bizarre is how I can sort of say it. But it's very well-researched. And it essentially says that Hitler was deep in the world of mysticism and connections with demonic powers. And this is pretty well-known stuff. You might know it already, but I found some of this really interesting that I didn't know. He believed in the Hollow Earth Society that goes back a couple of centuries. And the Hollow Earth Society said that the Earth is hollow and inside the Earth are supernatural beings who live and they have superpowers. And that if we don't submit to them and find ways to connect with them, they will destroy us. Does that not sound like a Star Trek episode? (laughs) The secret cult? Maybe Star Trek made an episode like that. I don't know. I'm not a Trekkie, but it would fit very well into that genre. So the Nazis were actually trying to find the way into the hollow earth so they could touch these beings. And so there's overlay of Hinduism there, Buddhism there, and then apparently German mythology. So these demon communications, this is really creepy, prompted Hitler to use kids. And that comes from the hollow earth perspective on children. So that's why you had the young kids in black uniforms from ages 8 to 13 who had sinister death heads on their sleeves. And Hitler, at one point, had 8.8 million of such children, and that was, of course, part of the demonic force. And so his Third Reich was entirely demonic occultism. So the seven founders of Nazism were all deep into the occult. And the book, The Morning of the Magicians, it says, one cannot help but think of him as a medium, talking about Hitler. For most of the time, this is so fascinating, mediums are ordinary, insignificant people. And then suddenly, they're endowed with what seems to be supernatural powers. And it was in this way, beyond any doubt, that Hitler was possessed by forces beyond himself, demonic forces, which the individual named Hitler, was only the temporary vehicle, and that is true in so many instances in any part of meditation or uh, psychic powers or uh, reading palms, any of that. Normal, quote-unquote, for the most part, and then when they're in that state, it's a whole different deal. So those close to him said that he spoke openly in public, in a way that was very different in his normal voice, because the demons at that point were not speaking through him. So this is a quote from Hitler. What will the social order of the future be? Comrades, I will tell you, over all will reign a new and exalted nobility of whom I cannot speak. And so he was talking about demon rule taking over the whole world. So this interesting point, a regular person being demon-possessed, and and then he's going to be revealed. Like the Antichrist is going to be revealed at some point. I believe he's alive right now. That's my opinion. It's not prophecy. It's just my opinion. But I think he's walking the planet as I speak. Not fully possessed yet, just like Hitler. This is really interesting. I watched a clip of the Dick Cavett show. And if you don't know who Dick Cavett is, he's this guy who did a talk show from the late 60s to the early 70s. And he had on his show Orson Welles. 
And Orson Welles, if you don't know who he is, was a brilliant actor with this amazing voice from the 40s, and he did some traveling when he was younger. So Dick Cavett asks about the time that he met Adolf Hitler. So Orson Welles tells the story that he was hiking through the Tyrol in Austria, Germany, and the hiking country, and he didn't know it then, but the teacher that he was with, his hiking partner named Stryker, was a budding Nazi, as Orson Welles was his budding Nazi. And there was a rally, a Nazi rally near Innsbruck, he says. And this is what he says about the Nazi party at the time, that they were a party of nuts that nobody took seriously at all. And this striker fellow got a place at the table with this, and again, I'm quoting Orson Welles, saying this tiny little party of cranks. <laughs> and he said, the man sitting next to me was Hitler. And he made so little impression on me, I can hardly remember a second of it. He had no personality whatsoever. He was invisible. There was nothing there. He says it emphatically. He says, that's the point of the whole story. Now, Orson is an actor. And actors and writers, and I'm sure even at his young age, were the same in this way. Generally, they are highly observant people. And they're always looking for personalities. Who's the person in the room who's charismatic? Who has the story to tell? And they're looking for a mannerism to imitate or uh, a piece of dialogue that's interesting, but they're definitely watching for the person who is interesting, like I said, charismatic, something about them. So he sat next to this man and was not drawn to him at all. So he might as well, Hitler might as well, have been part of the wallpaper. This man who was responsible for the death of six million Jews and ended his life by suicide, a man who led a nation into utter catastrophe. But you don't see that until he's infused with demonic possession through his meditation and his occult practices and his dive into the dark occult and the demonic. So you can be quote-unquote normal, have a normal voice, be walking around doing normal things like the Antichrist might be doing right at this moment, but then eventually when that takes over, that person is possessed and that is revealed. So eyewitnesses to Hitler's behavior said this, he wakes up in the night screaming and in convulsions. He calls for help and appears to be half paralyzed. He is seized with panic that makes him tremble when the bed shakes. He utters confused and unintelligible sounds, grasping as if on the point of suffocation, goes white, sweats profusely, stamping his feet and screaming. So if that doesn't talk about demon possession, I don't know what does. But those are the things we see. The traits we see in Antiochus Epiphanes and Adolf Hitler, those together put those together and then put them on steroids. And that's a picture of the Antichrist. So what do we know about the coming of the Antichrist? And, and besides the foreshadowing characteristics I just talked about. So what will happen at that time? And again, we'll even talk about some of the traits that scripture describes him as. So he will come out of the revived Roman Empire, which is a 10-nation confederacy, and that is talked about in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. 
The vision that Daniel is given then is of the great empires and kingdoms all the way to the end of time. And the vision starts with Babylonia, and then it's Medo-Persia, and then it's Greece and Rome. And it's interesting that the last empire from where the Antichrist comes is spoken about as having greater diversity and a much larger swath of area, a much larger conquest. So all the ones before were in a more confined geographical space, but now it sounds like this one travels throughout the whole world. And it talks about the beast with the 10 horns. That's that 10 nation confederacy global rule. And then the 11th horn is the Antichrist kingdom. And he'll take over the 10 horn confederacy. And that will last until Christ's second coming. So the Antichrist will rise out of some future political arrangement that smacks of globalization. And of course, we know we're headed in that direction. Just look up the global reset, right? It's headed right down that alley. Some things we know about him, he'll be arrogant, hostile toward God, intelligent, fierce, a blasphemer, mesmerizing in his personality and ability. And he'll be voted in. He'll be voted into the system. It's going to be a bloodless victory when he takes over worldwide because there will be a desperate desire for peace throughout the world and that plays right into his hands and we can see a little of that on this global scale with the mayhem that is happening in the streets and the pandemic precursor foreshadowing he will convince the world he can provide for them And the world's desire for safety and security will put them in a stupor, and then he's going to take advantage of that. So he will champion peace. He'll be the one who makes peace in the Middle East. Now, President Trump has started that process. He's not the Antichrist, by the way, but he has started the peace in the Middle East. Now, peace in the Middle East is good. We're actually supposed to pray for the peace of Israel. But it won't be like that when the Antichrist takes over because he'll do all of it for his own ends and he'll look like he's going to defend Israel and then he'll eventually turn on Israel and try to crush her. What we're seeing now in the Middle East with the peace forming between Israel and the surrounding countries, though, is crucial because we're seeing prophecy come to pass. This has to happen. The Antichrist, in order to take over, is going. this is all going to be part of it. The peace treaties will either be in place and then extend out. Right now, we have a lot of peace treaties with Israel. That they've connected a lot of these Arab countries. And then the Antichrist is going to come in and either extend that out, or he's going to make a new one. But the point is, those puzzle pieces are coming together in a way that you haven't seen before, ever. I don't think this has ever happened. And the war, there is a war that is fought in the book of Ezekiel chapter 38. And that war is fought when Israel is safe, peaceful, and prosperous, because that's when the countries come against Israel to steal what they have. And you're seeing the setup right now. That's that's how it's described before they're eventually attacked. See all of these countries looking at the benefit that Israel is to them and what they have. That's part of it. There's a peace treaty now, but some of these countries 
are going to come against them, not the ones right now that have the peace deal. Actually, those countries are talked about in scripture as protesting when Israel is invaded. Places like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, those places actually are spoken of in scripture that are going to protest. But the countries that come against Israel and try to steal what she has, Iran, Turkey, Libya, Russia, and a couple more. So watch for that as well. So remember, the Antichrist is going to win by agreement, not conflict. He's going to bring in a false peace. And it's because of this ability to bring about world peace that he will be, of course, so popular. But this peace is the first seal broken in the seven seals of judgment. The first seal is a false peace. When you look at Revelation, you have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments, each one more devastating than the last, and that's in Revelation. The first one is a false peace ushered in by the Antichrist. Everything will look good for a while, and then it's going to just break loose in hell on earth. Let's just say it that way. So Daniel 7.25 speaks about the Antichrist. What does it say about him? It says that he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Look how powerful he is. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. And that's the martyrs during the tribulation. Daniel 8 23 through 26 says this, And in the later time of their kingdom, when the transgressors had reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features. I said he'd be fierce, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. That's Those are some characteristics. Also in Daniel 8.27, this is my favorite. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. He was so astonished by the vision. And, you know, in the vernacular, it freaked him out so bad that he fainted and was sick for days. I totally get that. That would be me. So Daniel 11, 36 through 39 goes on and says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. Again, these are traits that, that are to be looked for. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemes against the god of God, blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. That's important to remember all of this is still under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers. And the word for God here is Elohim, which is plural. So it probably means or or it refers to gods, plural. So that would be some kind of maybe pagan worship in some kind of pantheistic way which he'll have no regard for any type of religion. His only desire is for power. So scripture goes on and says, 
nor the desire of women. So this could mean he is a homosexual. It could mean that he is celibate. But the point is he has no interest or desire for women, nothing but power. So it goes on to say he doesn't regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all, but in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So he spends all his money to become powerful and to finance wars. And in Revelation 13, 16 through 18, it's pretty famous scripture. It says, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So buying and selling, he will control all the goods of the earth without the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand. You won't be able to buy or sell. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, that kept me up at night. Whoever controls commerce when it comes to your basic necessities controls your life, right? So we can see how that happens right now. I mean, we're all going to be paying with our phones. A lot of people already do that. They, they pay with their phones because it's so easy to do that. They've already started implanting chips in people in your forehead or your hand. So that's already here and it's going to get more and more popular. We have all of the technology for all of that. And so... <laughs> Not to be surprised, when John wrote Revelation somewhere around 94 AD, do you think he had any idea what Apple Pay or Bitcoin was? I don't think so. Of course not. So you can see that though, whoever controls commerce, like I said, with Amazon buying Whole Foods, buying a food company, and you know they have their tentacles in every single thing. Every time you turn around, Amazon, I feel like, is controlling it. Well, we can see how that would happen and how that scripture, how that prophecy would come to pass. And I feel compelled to say this. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one now because I don't know how long we're going to be able to purchase them. Certainly, probably not on Amazon because the Bible has a moral compass. So very soon it will be censored and banned even here in America. I mean, think about it. Where do you buy your books? Amazon, every Christian bookstore that I ever went to has closed its doors and closed its doors a long time ago. And then, of course, all Borders books closed their doors. And now Barnes & Noble are in short supply. You buy your books on Amazon. So if they don't want to sell it on their platform, how difficult would it be to get one? You know, you could hit, hit the Goodwill. I'm sure they still have a few. So anyway, Matthew 24 gives us some details to follow regarding how these things are going to play out. So remember, I talked about Jesus warning the disciples in Matthew 24. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And that was to the Jews. That was to his disciples. And that has to do with this particular piece of scripture, future tribulation time. And it was really focused on them specifically. And as you look down the corridor, uh, Israel and the covenant that God still has with them. But I am not going to say anything about that. That's a whole nother topic. But the important part about it is, remember, I said there was a near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes with the abomination of desolation. And we're still waiting for the far fulfillment in the Antichrist. But Go back and remember, I told you about the temple. And there was a temple when Antiochus Epiphanes did the desecration and slaughtered the pigs and the pig blood and all of that. There was a temple on the temple. Well, they think it's on the Temple Mount area, but that's a whole other discussion. But the Temple Mount area, um, for him to do that, the temple was still there, but the Antichrist cannot desecrate a temple if there's no temple. And right now there is not one. So how does that get solved? Well, let's look at a, at a brief history of the temple. So the first one, the first Jewish temple Solomon built, and that was in the mid 900 BCs. And that's recorded in the book of first Kings. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC. And then the second temple was completed in 516 BC by Zerubbabel and others. And then around 20 BC, that lasted. And then around 20 BC, the building was renovated and expanded by Herod the Great. You've probably heard about him and became known as Herod's Temple. That temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD during the siege of Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it would be. He predicted that. So from there, there have been a few attempts to rebuild it, but nothing has really succeeded. So just let's talk about the temple and the timeline and regarding the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Let me just tell you, if you see on the news that they are rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that is your clue. If you didn't believe anything that I said That will prove my point that the prophecy is happening. And well, that's going to be a really tough period of history. Let me just say that. So let me go back to the temple. After the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem in the 7th century, it became an Islamic shrine. You, Like I said, there's the Dome of the Rock now. You can look at the picture on Google. Just Google Dome of the Rock, Temple Mount, the Alaska Mosque. That stands there right now. And I think it's been there since 691 AD. And so that's the temple courtyard, basically. So no temple. The Temple Mount 
has those things on it and the Jews have no authority there and certainly won't be allowed to rebuild the temple as of this moment because, of course, of the friction between the Arabs and the Jews that began in Genesis 16. So although there are some interesting developments about that. So you would ask, how is the temple going to be rebuilt in the midst of the friction? Well, there is a great site if you're interested in this topic. It's Behold Israel, and Amir Safari is an Israeli believer. He's got the 411 on what's going on over there. And so in a nutshell, what is happening? Because Saudi Arabia signed peace with Israel. You've seen that on the news. They signed peace with Israel. Well, the Palestinians got pretty mad about that and said to Saudi Arabia, well, if you do that, how dare you? How dare you sign peace with Israel? If you do that, we're going to say that there's no way that you can be true Muslims because true Muslims, right, would never sign peace with Israel. So there was a high-ranking Muslim sheikh, Saudi Arabia high-ranking Muslim sheikh who tweeted, which I find hilarious, tweeted this, and and Amir talks about this, that, uh, you know what, Alaska can easily be dropped from our playbook because, you know what, the holiest sites are in Saudi Arabia, Mecca, and Medina. So if we lose the Alaska mosque, you know, they're kind of shrugging, like, big deal. We have the most sacred sites in Saudi Arabia. You guys can't touch those and we can leave you in peace. So you see, this is another interesting thing I didn't know, but true, apparently, that Muhammad never even left Saudi Arabia. The mosque on the Temple Mount, the Alaska Mosque, was built 70 years after Muhammad's death. He was never even in Jerusalem. So again, the Saudis are saying, basically, you know what? Don't threaten us. We have the holiest sites, the true holy sites, and go ahead and keep your mosque. That's a theory that that could be happening. Well, it's not a theory that that actually did happen, the, the tweeting and the conversation between them, but the theory that they could be gearing up to say, we can just leave that one alone. And then what would happen then? They would be conditioning the moderate Muslim world to more easily let go of the Temple Mount. Or let's just say they might be open to something of a more Jewish flavor. So now you could see how that could happen, that the Jews would be more free to build if the... Arabs loosen their grip because of what's happening. So that's interesting. You might say, wait, that sounds like the Jewish temple is for Jews. I mean, all throughout Jewish history, God had specific qualifications for it. So it would just be a Jewish thing. And, you know, I'm not Jewish. Uh, I'm not really interested. But the temple that they want to rebuild today is ecumenical, meaning in their vision, it's going to be for everyone, for everyone to come and be part of the temple, which makes a whole lot of sense again, because that fits with the Antichrist, who's basically going to be a pagan of some sort, and he's going to be in the temple happily desecrating it. So that's really part of it, is that it's not just, in their minds now, it's not just a Jewish thing, it's going to be for all people everywhere globalization invite everybody in this fits right into that prophecy and that plan and there is a place 
in Israel, and I've been there. It's called the Temple Institute, and it's dedicated to rebuilding the temple. And I've watched their progress. And about 20 years ago, it wasn't really mainstream. It was more like, oh, yeah, those people that think they're going to go you know, back to the Old Testament days and rebuild the temple. But now it's very mainstream. And I've often watched the rabbi leading this project, being interviewed in his yarmulke and his spectacles and his full graying beard. And he overlooks the temple and he talks to the reporter and he updates the reporter on the progress. And the biggest hurdle, of course, is that the Muslims have that control right now over the temple mount. But we can see, right, how that could be changing. And so the rabbi is like starry-eyed in his accounting of how life will look once the temple is rebuilt and just desperate for the day when it will all be made possible. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And he wants that to become a reality. And he, again, he makes it sound like an ecumenical picnic, which makes sense because, again, like the temple can't be exclusively for Jews if there is a one world system dominated by the Antichrist. So this fits in perfectly. And it's funny because the rabbi calls the rebuilding a divine kiss from heaven, which, of course, he obviously hasn't read the book of Revelation. He says it's a symbol of God's loving embrace of all humanity. Uh, No, I don't think so. It was never that in the first or second temple, and it certainly isn't going to be that during the tribulation. So back in the Old Testament, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. I mean, you couldn't even enter the Holy of Holies except for once a year, and that only the high priest and any deviation, and you'd be struck down and killed in an instant. That is hardly a loving embrace. So he's way off. (laughs) But anyway, visiting the Temple Institute was was something that I did not want to miss. And so when my church group went to Israel, I had to be sure that we went there. And so the building contains all the specifics for temple worship to be reinstated. And our group was in this tight knit little pack and we were wandering from chamber to chamber. And I was on my husband's heels, like imagining the door slamming shut and the shofar blowing and then a proclamation sounding that the temple had been readied and some well-meaning Jew with the last name of Levine, because that plays into it too, holding up a container with the ashes of the red heifer. And I just saw the Antichrist coming around the corner in a black limousine. It was so freaky. And so the tour guide was saying, oh, look, these are the priestly garments. These are the sacred vessels. And we have all the gold we need for the menorah. And the list went on and on. So we were trying to engage this this little girl with thoughts of Christ and maybe how the second coming was being overlooked. But she would just give us these little nods. And she had this little Star of David necklace. And she would just rub it. And she would nod. And uh, her, little, her little mouth would be really quiet. And she would say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every time we said, well, hey, look, rumor has it the Ark of the Covenant is under the Dome of the Rock. Know anything about that? And she would just like barely move her mouth. Well, God only knows is what she would say. And so we'd try to go on and ask another question, but they were pretty tight-lipped about all of that. But the last thing that you see before you exit the museum is this large picture of the imagined rebuilt temple. And it's gold and the sky in the background is blue and gold. And then there's a tram that makes its approach from some offset city, indicating regular mass transit for day tourists. 
then everything around seems like ripe with promise. And these are just contemporary people, construction workers, nurses, college students, doctors, teachers, and they seriously stare at this temple hypnotically. So I looked at my friend and we both do eschatology. We're both into eschatology. And I just looked at her. My eyes were like as big as golf balls. This is unbelievable. We're seeing this right before our very eyes. The storm is coming. And of course, she totally agreed. And you can look it up. Look it up for yourself. This is all happening. This is in our lifetime. And it is extremely serious. So think about those traits of the Antichrist. I just want you to know what to look for and to know that prophecy is true and that this is all really happening. And as, as far as a little hope, there's, al- there's always hope, but I, I want to read Second Chronicles 26 and say this, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nation? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? No one can withstand the Lord of glory, certainly not the Antichrist, so remember that. But you are in dire straits if you are not a Christian, you do not know the Lord, and so that's a whole nother topic and a whole nother series of Bible studies and facts, but... If you are interested in this topic, I would suggest that you listen to Behold Israel with Amir Safari, that you go to my church's website, gracechurch.org. Lots of resources there for biblical truth. Also, gty.org has sermons from A to Z about the book of Revelation. You can't get better than that expositional preaching from A to Z on every single verse of Revelation. But I do encourage you to do that. This is a incredibly important issue of our time. And these prophecies are coming to pass. There is so much proof. So I encourage you not to be an ostrich, which is to bury your head in the sand and just pretend like none of this is happening. All of this is proven. All of this can be proved with scripture. And prophecy is real and it is happening and we need to be ready. So I encourage you with that. Thanks for listening.